every project, idea, grant, publication, clinical trial starts and then comes back to a patient. This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and my guest is Samik Ray Chowdhury, a James physician scientist. Samik was the very first guest on the podcast, and he has been back a few times since, and I've always wanted to talk to him about and to do an entire episode and learn all about the history of immunotherapy, how it was developed, what it is, and exactly how it works, the roadblocks for its development, and what's next. I thought Samik would be great for this because his career has aligned perfectly with the discovery of genetic sequencing and immunotherapy. Plus, he's really good at explaining complicated science in simple terms that we can all understand. Welcome back, Samik. Thanks so much for having me here. We're excited to talk about immuno-oncology. Let's start off historically in your career. You did your your joint um, MD-PhD here at the James in the Wexner Medical Center. And you said, I remember you telling me at the time that immunotherapy was, was really not something that seemed to have much promise. Put us back, what year was this and what was immunotherapy? What was it like back then? So to put it literally, immunotherapy for cancer research was a laughing stock of cancer research. I was doing my MD and PhD training. It was around 2000, 2002 when I was doing my PhD, and we were struggling. We were trying to use the immune system to see if we could reject cancer. And we had learned that it works through bone marrow transplants for certain types of cancers. That's one example where somebody may have a blood cancer, and the way to get rid of it, those patients get a chemotherapy to eradicate the leukemia, and then we literally give them somebody else's blood that reforms in that person, but then it can reject the cancer and prevent it from coming back. But the problem with this, this immunotherapy approach, it's very toxic, and it's not necessarily effective for other cancers. So in the lab for many years, immunotherapy outside of bone marrow transplant was challenging. Uh, and, and literally considered a laughing stock. Now, I remember my wife was a pediatric oncology nurse, and back in the mid-90s, there, and I got to meet some of these kids who were getting these bone marrow transplants. It was not like it is today. There were horrible side effects, and your body rejecting it, and they had to be like in a hospital for 30 days. And, and so that's what you're talking about, that it... Yep. Certainly, bone marrow transplant has improved yeah. in terms of certain management, and some of it can be more outpatient than hospital-based, but it is still a very toxic therapy, and we're trying to find ways to manage that. Uh, fortunately, during the 1990s, there were some movements forward, uh, the discovery of a growth factor, kind of like a hormone, called interleukin-2. And in the 90s, we learned that was another effective immunotherapy also very toxic. One of my first experiences as a medical student, and then later as a, as a, as a trainee in an oncology fellowship, I saw patients getting high-dose interleukin-2, and the telltale sign that someone was getting this therapy was that they were curled up in the fetal position, sweating, febrile, for days. 
That was Heidos sinorleukin 2. We were literally stepping on the gas of their immune system. It's like they had the flu for a week straight. And by stepping on the gas, revving up the immune system, they could try to reject their cancer. And it worked for some patients. So patients with kidney cancer and melanoma in the 1990s got this high-dose interleukin-2 hormone therapy, and it actually cured them of their cancers, about 8 to 5% of patients with both of those cancer types. Now, we didn't know who. We didn't know who would benefit, who was likely to benefit, and it was very toxic. It it could be lethal, the therapy. But this was immunotherapy in that it like you said, it, it activated their immune system, but you didn't know how to turn it off. Right. Well, we, we, it would turn off, but we couldn't control it, right? It was literally like a, a, a gas pedal, and everything was on. And you just say, go, and everything is fired up. They get side effects like fluid in their lungs, their blood pressure drops, they get fevers. The symptoms, the side effects, people who had heart conditions and kidney conditions could not do interleukin-2 because it would have been too toxic to them. So it was a sign that immunotherapy could work, but we just needed a a more fine-tuned approach to do it rather than the sledgehammer of that hormone, uh, which today can still be very effective, but we have more refined ways that have since evolved for immunotherapy. So this is where the the laughing stock part of it came in is that I guess other scientists, doctors would say, this is just not working. It's like you said, it's like hitting them with a sledgehammer, yeah. and but, you, but you're going to walk us through the history of how you refined it. Right. And genomics is a big part of how you refined it. Is that, is that right? That's right. So in 2001, 2002, the Human Genome Project was concluding, and that was a project to look at the entire collection of genes, six billion letters of one person. So we hadn't made this map. So if you're trying to make a cross-country trek and you wanted to go, well, before we had our phones today, you needed a triptych, right, to go from, say, I remember New those. York to L.A. We needed a map. But now we're talking Lewis and Clark, and you've got no map, and you're going to make a map of the human genome. So this was a 14-year project led by the NIH and some industry, about $3 billion to do this. And we, we right. finally had a map of one person. Yet the, the real impact would follow with technology. So it took 14 years, $3 billion, with maybe the Model T of gene sequencing technology. And then since that time, from 2002 onward, engineers, physicists got together and we came up with better technologies to really revolutionize sequencing of the genome. But what exactly is sequencing? It's when you say letters, there's billions of letters, but it's the same four letters it's the over same and over. Four letters in the genome. Cat and the C- red C A T C A and T G C A and T. Okay. And in what order they fall in? Just like a language, that encodes a message, and the message is anywhere from twenty thousand genes to other messages that tell us how to make proteins, how to regulate those proteins. And those proteins are, you know, uh, things that make our nails. They're things that process other products around us. They help us digest foods. Uh, So that's the code, right? And that defines hair color, eye color. It, It could define risk of cancer. And we know that cancer 
is a disease of genetic changes. So we know that certain genetic changes that can happen, not necessarily at birth, but after you've been born, that genetic change could give one cell in your body the ability to do something it's not supposed to. Grow and grow and grow and invade and go other places. And that's what cancer is. It spreads like a cancer. That's the saying because cells aren't supposed to do that. They have a known program in their body that says, I'm a skin cell. I'm just going to hang out right here. But if you grow, grow, grow and go other places, that's the definition of cancer. So what's driving that? What gene or genes? And the technologies didn't exist for us to be able to look at a handful of genes, never mind thousands of genes. Uh, And so 2002 to 2006, new technologies came. uh, And that was when I was doing my, my training uh, at the school up north. Okay. You don't want to say it. Okay. So that team up north or the school <laughs> up north, uh, a great opportunity for me to, to go into a new field of genomics. And you know, while my training had been in immunotherapy, I, I saw this technology and this opportunity to be able to look at the genomes of cancer, all the collection of genetic changes. The letters. And try to decipher it. What, what was the, 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 the driving event of one person's cancer? And could we use that information to decide what are the best ways to treat them? Do they need this therapy, a novel therapy? Could we design new therapies based on genetics? And so I, I trained with uh, my mentor, Rul Shanayan, at the school up north uh, for six years. Uh, a combination of a field combining gene sequencing and computer science uh, to look for patterns. Uh, and in one way, it's looking for needles in a haystack, too, with, with billions and billions of bits of data. So when you say billions of bits of data, this is the part that is fascinating. The, these billions of bits of data are those letters, G-C-A-T, over and over and over again in sequence. You're looking for something out of sequence, this needle in a haystack, what do you, what did you find that's wrong? Well, we're looking for mutations. So something that's out of sequence, that's not consistent with our map. So that's where the map comes in, the human genome map. We know what it's supposed to be. How much has it diverged from what it's supposed to be? And that's part of the trick. Is that really important? So we've got many mutations, but not all of them are disease causing. So we have to figure out which mutations are important. And that's, that's where the needle in the haystack comes in. We can find many mutations, but which one or ones could be important. Um, and and that, that's, that's the challenge with those billions and billions of bits of data. Well, maybe to help me understand that, what would be an example of something you found at the, the school up north, Michigan? What, what would be an example? Walk us through how you sort of discovered this needle in a haystack and how that helped you design a new treatment or clinical trial. So at that point, uh, gene sequencing technologies or next generation sequencing was strictly in the laboratory. It was a research tool uh, in 2010. And so we were trying to discover these needles in the haystack. uh, And as we were doing this discovery work, Uh, my mentor and I had an idea, well, what if we just start trying to bring this to the office, to the clinic, to see patients, look at their genome, and see if we can figure out a new strategy. We hadn't hadn't been done before. And and so we devised a a study, uh, the first ever study to do this, and we started consenting patients 
to allow us to do a biopsy of their tumor, to take their tumor into the lab, and do multiple types of gene sequencing that had never been done before in real time. Uh, and in 30 days, we would have the results. Uh, it would take two weeks of processing on a supercomputer at, at the school up north. And we'd have, again, billions and bits, billions of bits of data. And then our job was now to say, well, is there a needle here in this haystack that can help us treat patients? And, and the first couple patients that we saw, we were able to identify genes that we thought were driving their cancer. But our challenge was, in 2011 and 12, is that we were ahead of the times. We didn't have the drugs right. to match those genes. We knew the genes that were causing the trouble and driving the cancer growth, but we were ahead of schedule. The drug development hadn't caught up with us yet. Well, that's, that's like a chicken and the egg thing. What comes first, the discovery of the genetic mutation that causes the cancer or the drug to cure it? And so, so we made a bunch of eggs, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but that actually spurred drug development, okay, right? Yeah. I think chicken and egg is a great example. And, and that sort of, uh, that demand was placed upon industry, uh, to make new drugs, new small molecules, so-called targeted therapies that field grew at that point to, to be able to match that demand. We were learning about patients. We were learning about their genes learning about novel targets, and a demand was created for drug development, not only for targeted therapies, but also for immunotherapy, too. Okay, so I think I understand. So you had these billions of letters from this patient's tumor using a supercomputer that compared it to a, a normal sequence of billions of letters. Right. You find this little sentence within a giant book that's wrong, right. out of order, and then you, and was each one person's different, or do you see the same thing happening over and over? And you say, oh, this is a genetic mutation that's common. You know, you could see both. You could see something that's quite rare that's found in one patient, or you could see something that could perhaps be maybe 10% of lung cancer may have something in common. And so, again and again, each one of these needles in a haystack we discover. Uh, again, over the past 15 years, and that's helped drive drug development towards these markers and targets. Once you, d you discovered all these mutations, then what? How, what? how did that help you treat these patients? Because there weren't the drugs to treat those specific mutations. So one of the things that happened was new types of trials. So instead of treating patients based on a cancer type, trials evolved. So we started saying we should treat patients who have this genetic marker with this therapy. So that's one step. Uh, the second step was the recognition that as immunotherapies were being developed, that genetics could help us understand which patients were perhaps more likely to benefit from an immunotherapy. Uh, and luckily, uh, since the development of the, the interleukin-2, uh, some new findings had emerged. So instead of stepping on the gas pedal, we were now stepping on or cutting the brakes. And so the immune system has on and off switches. And at any one point in time, you know, you're, you're, you're controlling your immune system subconsciously. If you need your immune system to turn on to fight an infection, to fight a cold virus, say, it turns on, but it magically turns off. And so what we need to do for cancer treatment is 
release the immune system to go after your cancer. And so we're cutting the brakes. Because the cancer has put the brakes on it. The cancer has found a way to use the brakes. Yeah. It's sneaky. Yeah. And, and so if it's stepping on the brakes, well, we need to release the brakes. And so the therapies that have emerged in the 2000s, um, 2009, 2011, uh, immunotherapies, first in, in uh, lung cancer, melanoma, uh, kidney cancer, uh, but then very quickly, we've seen these so-called checkpoints, which are the breaks, checkpoint immunotherapy, uh, be effective in many cancer types. The challenge, albeit these are a lot less toxic than interleukin-2, is who's going to benefit? And so in some cancer types, we may see only one in five patients benefit, but we don't know why. We don't know why one person versus another isn't, isn't benefiting. So we need to understand that. And that's where genetics has come back to help us. It turns out that there are certain genetic markers or patterns that can help us identify patients more likely to benefit. So in 2015, uh, one of my patients, uh, Rhonda Ball, who was very happy for us to share her story, uh, came to us with a cancer that we couldn't diagnose. Uh, she'd been through chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, uh, she had lost 30 pounds. Uh, she had tumors in her bowels and soft tissue and bones. Uh, we did gene sequencing, and what we found was something unusual. She had many more mutations than most patients ever do. So about 5% of patients might have this high mutation burden. Many different mutations. Lots and lots of them. Different. And, and it has a special pattern uh, that we figured out that's called microsatellite instability. And it happens in about 3% of cancers, all cancers. And it turns out that this particular type of high mutation burden or high tumor mutation burden makes you more likely to respond to the new checkpoint immunotherapies. And so at that point in 2016, uh, we qualified Rhonda for a clinical trial to receive a IV immunotherapy with PD-1 immunotherapy. And uh, she got a 30-minute infusion on her first treatment. She had a tumor just under her breastbone that was painful, about five centimeters in size. And uh, you know, later she would tell me that that first night she went home and the tumor was hot. It was very hot. Um, and obviously... I'm telling you this story, so the outcome was very good. The tumor was hot because her immune system was reacting. It was fighting her cancer. So six wow. weeks later, I would see Rhonda, and, and I, I had a hard time finding the tumor. On the scans, they had improved. And that's when I knew that this was no longer a laughingstock. So you're able to identify MSI in different types of cancer, and once you or anyone identifies that, there are drugs that, immunotherapy drugs that allow the immune system to take the breaks off that cancer, find it, and hopefully destroy it. Exactly. Wow. And something you said that you weren't able to identify your cancer, and I, I think in talking to you and others that sometimes when your cancer starts in one organ and spreads, 
you don't know where it started. Is was that what was? Yeah, about five percent of the time, the cancer can can evolve and and not really look like any kind of cancer. So it's hard to tell. Eventually, we actually did figure out over the years that we think she had uterus cancer, and uterus cancer is known to have this M- marker MSI. MSI. Yeah, and. If someone has uterus cancer, and no matter where it spreads, it's still uterus cancer. Correct. Okay, and so the MSI would be effective no matter where it is in the body of the patient. So the genetics of the tumor can help us define which patients are more likely to benefit from an immunotherapy. So I'm trying to picture you in the lab. This must have been an incredibly exciting time where like the light bulb goes off and and you and others in that lab and around the country are saying, wow, this immunotherapy is something that's really going to be a game changer. Well, that's where the excitement is today in cancer research. So how do we harness the power of the immune system? It's, it's, it's got memory, it's adaptable, it's preventive. So there's so many ways we can try to utilize the immune system to fight cancer. Uh, there are ways we could use it to prevent cancer. There are potentially ways we can use it to prevent cancer from coming back in someone who's been treated. Uh, in Rhonda's case, she had aggressive cancer that had spread already, and we were able to use immunotherapy to have, help her reject the cancer altogether. And, and so, so today... You know, more than half of cancer research, I would say, is really focused on having a better understanding of the immune system and its interactions with cancer. Well, that was a great history, and we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, you'll fill us in on what you just talked about, of where you are now and some of the future benefits that, are, that you're, you're working on. In today's world, misinformation abounds. But at the Ohio State Health and Discovery website, we're addressing today's most relevant health, wellness, science, and research topics, all from the Ohio State experts you can trust. We're tapping into physicians, scientists, and thought leaders across our medical center and health sciences colleges to give you the deeper story behind the headlines and the truth about the topics affecting the health of individuals, society, and the world. Visit health.osu.edu today. We're back with Samik Roy Chowdhury, and we're talking about the history of immunotherapy. Samik was very involved in that as a PhD MD here at Ohio State and at the school up north. And now again, as he runs a lab here at the James and the Comprehensive Cancer Center. So fill us in on what your lab is working on the cutting edge, the the new research you're doing, and how you take what you do in the lab and apply that to patient treatment. So we try to combine multiple disciplines to reach our research goals. So we're trying to identify new ways to treat patients based on genetics. And so that involves specialists who know genomics, so the field of gene sequencing, uh, what cancer genomes look like, uh, how they are copied by normal cells and cancerous cells. We have computer scientists that are part of our team. They do programming. Uh, they run software. They develop softwares. Uh, they use supercomputing to analyze billions and billions and bits of data. Uh, and then we have clinicians, so people who are training to be oncologists 
uh, or, or treat patients with cancer, with chemotherapy, immunotherapy, writing clinical trials. Uh, and then finally, to blend all of that together, we have people who develop diagnostics that are part of our team. So new ways to test cancer. So if we discover a novel marker and then one of our PhD students figures out that it can be helpful for treating cancer, well, then we need a new test so we can find the patients. And then one of our oncology fellows will write the trial to treat the patient. So it's a really uh, hands-on, team-oriented process to go from what's the genetic finding, how does it make cancer vulnerable, how do we make a test, how do we treat the patient in a new clinical trial, and then we tell the story and tell people about it. So the genetic finding would be a mutation you find through the sequencing. The test would be so that you can reliably look at someone's tumor to see if they have that mutation. A clinical-grade test. And that's taking the tumor and then sequencing it? Exactly. And sometimes it's sequencing the tumor. Sometimes it's a test from the tumor, for example, looking at a protein. Uh, Sometimes it's looking in the blood for a novel genetic marker in the blood. But some kind of test to make the diagnosis of that marker. Uh, And then a clinical trial to, to actually then be able to offer a novel therapy for that marker uh, and then to treat those patients and, and see what happens. We have to prove that it's going to work. Now, before you give us an example of that, it, it, it makes me think that, like you said before, in the early days, you were ahead of the curve in identifying these mutations before there were drugs to treat them. Is that That must still be the case, I take it. So today, we're trying to discover more genetic markers, uh, and, and we have to prove that they're important, right? And that's part of the research that goes on. Uh, and, and so for immunotherapy, we're, we're trying to discover how do we predict who's going to benefit, and then how do we identify which new therapies a patient might need to receive instead uh, if they're not going to benefit from our current therapies. So one of the things that we're studying today uh, is the gene you mentioned earlier, the protein, PDL1. Uh, and this is the target of some of the most common checkpoint therapies, the breaks of the immune system. And so today we give these checkpoint therapies to cut these breaks, release the immune system. But only about one in six patients, or one in five patients, benefits. Has the PDL1? Well, they may have it. They may still have it, but they may not benefit from it. Oh, one in six people with PDL1, only one in six patients with PDL1 benefit. Right. Okay. With the therapy. And so they may have it present in their tumor or in their in their in their uh, uh, liver metastasis, but they may not benefit. So so we don't know why. And so about two years ago, one of my colleagues came to me with, with a patient. Uh, they were being treated for chronic leukemia. Uh, and they were found to have a gene amplification of PDL1. And, and instead of having two copies of the gene in their tumor, they had many copies. And I said, huh. And then about six months later, uh, we, we had a new MD PhD student come to the lab, computer science student. And, and she was coming to visit us for a month to decide if this was the place she wanted to train. Uh, so we call that a rotation. And so this was her project. So, so I said, hey, there, there's some cancers that have this amplification. So let's go find out which ones have it. And does it mean something? 
and our, our, our hypothesis or our question was if a tumor has a bunch of PDL1 genes that it's not supposed to, does that mean it's making a lot of the PDL1 protein, turning that checkpoint on, and suppressing the immune system? Is that the person who's going to benefit the most? Again, from that patient observation, and lo and behold, uh, we've discovered a number of genetic alterations, so that needle in a haystack uh, that, that can happen in PDL1, and we're trying to figure out which patients are responding and not responding and matching uh, them to that finding. So PDL1 mutation isn't one mutation, it's several related mutations, and you're at the point now where you're trying to approach and treat each specific mutation. So we don't know which ones are the most important. Uh, okay. uh, and we've identified a subset of them that we think will tell us who's most likely to benefit. And what, what's interesting about this is right now we're giving PD-1 therapy to many, many patients. We think that this marker is going to be found in the ones that are most likely to benefit and that may help us figure out which ones are not going to benefit as much. But in a bigger picture way, well, is this a way for us to study cancer genomes? So, so what other parts of the immune system is cancer rewiring with genetic changes and flipping off other switches? And so, so drug development in, in the pharmaceutical industry is just drug after drug of immunotherapy targets, but they don't know who to give it to. So, so the traditional model still is here's a bunch of drugs for immunotherapy from other checkpoints. There's many checkpoints in the immune system that turn it off. And right now, phase one, phase two, these early clinical trials, we're just giving them to everybody when we don't know. And so, because there's no other options, right? Well, we don't know or, which patients are going to benefit, is what I'm saying. Okay. Um, so, so, so we don't know. They may not have other options, but we have no idea if we're giving it to the right patients in the first place, right? We're, we're sort of asking questions later. And so, our new genetics project is to compile tens and thousands worth of data of patients, billions and points of data, look at all the genes involved, all of them in the immune system and look at the ones that cancer is de you know, causing derangements in, so some type of mutation, and then we're looking at what those tumors look like. So can we find the tumors in patients that are the right tumors to receive a certain therapy? Uh, and that can all be based on genetics. So once you identify that, so within PDL one you'll identify which of the people whose cancer has that you'll be able to give them the right treatment. But are there other treatments for the different varieties and different genetic PDL1 genetic mutations available yet? Or are there still being? We developed? may be ahead of the game. Yeah. So again, again you're ahead. We could so be. you're identifying targets that there aren't yet. There are many drugs for targets that are ex they're in clinical trials now, and they may be. They, they're unaware of who should benefit from these therapies yet. But that's sounds, are, that sounds like a cycle that's always going to happen. Correct. That, exactly. And, yeah. and that, again, chicken and the egg, you've got to identify these mutations before you can, in many cases, come up with a treatment. So as a physician and a scientist, I start with the patients first and their tumor and their data 
in those patterns. A pharmaceutical company starts with a drug, and they don't know who to give it to yet. And so we have to work together, both physician scientists at a university like and, and, and a cancer hospital like the James, with the pharmaceutical industry, which has the resources to do big drug development, and align our research so we can find the right patients and the right drug. But if the pharmaceutical companies are developing drugs, but they're not quite sure how to, what they'll be used for and what, can't, what mutations they'll work on, how do they develop a drug without knowing that? That's a very good question. So they're starting with a target or a putative target. And, but what they don't know is the genetics behind that target, right? So the target could exist and it could be manipulated uh, in a model or in a, in, a, in a immunology model and produce an outcome, but they don't know which cancers, which patients have that particular immune checkpoint or immune alteration. Uh, and again, j- just rewind back to interleukin-2 in the 1990s. Interleukin-2 only worked for 5 to 8% of patients. And they didn't know why and then. They still don't know why. Right? Still don't know why. Correct. Wow. Are you working on that? Uh, Not that particular topic. We're we're starting with the patients uh, and the genomes that we have today. There's so much data available, and so we're leveraging that data. We're leveraging the ability to look at genomic changes, immunological changes in those same patients, and aligning them, right? And so the genes and and, and the alterations they have and the immune microenvironments that these, these tumors have, those are the clues. And then can we connect that to the right drugs? So you'll, a patient will be referred to you. You will take a, a, a biopsy of their tumor and run this big data and to, to develop the genomics and figure out how to treat them. So, I mean, this is like the very definition of personalized care. Well, that's going to be for immunotherapy. That's the future. I can't do that today. Well, you can, I, you can today do I the can genomic take, research, right. but you can't have the exact drug yet. Right. And, and that, that's better suited, not from one patient, right? To do that kind of research, we need thousands and thousands of patients worth of data uh, to be able to look for patterns, right? When you look for, it's hard to look for a needle. It seems counterintuitive, but a small haystack with one needle isn't as meaningful as having lots and lots and lots of hay and looking for many needles within that haystack together. Okay. So, so it's almost like two things. So for each patient now, you identify the genomic muta- mutation and do the best you can. Right. And we do have novel therapies and things that we can offer them. But this next step of is how do we use the genome to guide immunotherapy, that, that's where research is today. And developing like that, seeing similar patterns in people that that it's it's not just isolated to one person that that's a smaller haystack so there might be five percent of a certain kind of breast cancer that has a gene alteration that might tell us hmm maybe this is the right target for immunotherapy in this subgroup and that's the kind of research we're doing today that's why cancer is so hard you you can't cure cancer as a whole it's thousands of different things do you have need to cure in this like the two percent have this, three percent have that, and even within that three percent, there's sub, you know, genetic mutations. It's it's like almost endless. <laughs> well, it, it's a bit of a tug of war yeah. uh, when you think about the business of cancer drug development. 
it, it was never beneficial for a drug company to have a drug that only helps 10% of yeah. patients, right? Right. Yet that is personalized medicine. That's that's where we're headed with precision oncology. Um, and, and so the, the mindset is still part, that's still part of drug development. So we want to give the drug to everybody. Um, but really, it's probably only going to help a fraction of the patients we think it will. And we have to use science and, and, and guide that drug development in a little more you know, fruitful manner to select the right patients most likely to benefit and figure out why. Because if you can figure out why, then we just don't hand out the drug everywhere, right? Well, that leads me to the future that in you, you already hinted at that. that is, explain more that the future seems to be more personalized where someone diagnosed with cancer, you do the gen, a genomic test, figure out the mutation, what proteins, what, what's, in, what's putting the brakes on it. Is, is that everyone's, like there's going to be thousands of different treatments? So the potential for immunotherapy uh, to be personalized is really one of the, the, the greatest uh, uh, steps ahead of us uh, for cancer research. Can we make a personalized vaccine to give a patient after they've had their surgery to prevent it from coming back? So it's custom to their blood type or their HLA type, custom to the mutations in their tumor. Uh, and, and so that's one way you can imagine personalized immunotherapy. Uh, another way might be to take someone's own blood cells, modify them, and then give them back to the patient in a very personalized way to go back in, like a, like a heat-seeking missile, to go and reject their cancer. That's already ha- starting. So that's the type of clinical yeah. trial. That's the type of research that's happening in the labs here at Ohio State at the James. Uh, and, and that really is the future of immunotherapy, uh, to be able to really tailor therapy, uh, pinpoint what's the right therapy, how to deliver it, uh, and, and, and do both prevention and active treatment. So let's go back to 20 years ago. You're at the school up north. Did you ever think you could get to this point? Well, you you know, looking back uh, over 20 years or so, uh, I think the the funnest part of what I get to do is to take care of patients. uh, And they really drive every project, publication, grant, idea, in clinical trial. Everything that our team is doing starts with an observation in a patient. Uh, and that's very rewarding to know that I can deliver something back to those patients and, and their loved ones and show them uh, what research can do. And that's really gratifying. Yeah, I could, when you were talking about Rhonda Ball, I could see that, sense that, that that's pretty amazing to be able to extend and save someone's life. Every project, idea, grant, publication, clinical trial starts and then comes back to a patient. Well, thank you. This was great. I I learned a lot. And like I said at the beginning, you were able to explain this in, in simple, excellent, historic terms. Thanks for having me. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.